Thousands of people have been marching the streets of Iran, protesting the brutal leadership of the Ebrahim Raisi administration and the country's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. Protests broke out in September in northwestern Iran following the death of a young Kurdish woman, 22-year-old Masha Amini, while in the custody of Iran's morality police. Her crime, allegedly, not properly wearing her hijab, which can get a woman locked up in Iran. Pushback against the repressive law has been ongoing, but it reached a fever pitch after Amini's death. Now, Iranian authorities have been pushing back against the civil unrest by mass arresting protesters using sexual violence and, in the most extreme cases, executing demonstrators on charges that their actions are a threat to the security of Iran. The protests have since died down, but experts say the recent civil unrest reflect the energy of Iranians who rose up in the 1979 revolution against Mohammad Risi Pahlavi, the last Shah of Imperial Iran. In all of the Western media coverage I've seen of Iran, you get the impression that the country became brutal after the 1979 revolution and everything before that was nice and peaceful. Of course, we know that's not true. While photos of Iranians walking the streets in jeans and miniskirts give the veneer of freedom, the Shah was imprisoning thousands of his political enemies and even executing them without due process. They were free to wear what they wanted, but political thought was limited and punished if it didn't fall in line with the state. We also have to keep in mind that the Shah was complicit in British colonialism. By 1948, the Brits were making more money selling Iranian oil than Iran was, and the Shah was fine with it as long as he maintained his lifestyle. Mossadegh and his supporters came to power on a promise to change all that, and we all know what happened to him. Years of resentment against the Shah's brutality grew, and the 1979 revolution came after that. But the world's first Islamic Republic ushered in one form of extremism over another. And as Asal Rad, a scholar of Iranian politics, told me, women were at the forefront of the resistance. You see a lot more young women who are out on the streets being killed in the process. And that gives you an idea of the, the sort of demographics of who's showing up to protest, the age and the gender of who's being killed. On the generational front, you also have something very different in 2022. Whereas, you know, in 2009, what sparked the protests was a political issue. People were contesting the results of the 2009 election, calling the victory of the incumbent Ahmadinejad fraudulent. What sparked these protests in 2022 was a social issue, right? It's a women's rights issue. It's the fact that women should be able to you know, dress however they wish to dress. Here's why all of this matters to me and why it should matter to you. These protests come at a very critical crossroads in geopolitical history. The United States and Europe are invested in Tehran not acquiring nuclear weapons, a position Washington has had for decades. The U.S. wants to return to the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran deal. Donald Trump pulled out of the deal in May of 2018 for no good reason. The Biden administration wants to return to the deal, but the Iranian leadership's brutal crackdown on protesters is complicating negotiations, and the White House is prioritizing its support of the people taking the streets. Making things even more complicated is that the current administration in Tehran is supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine by sending them drones that Moscow is using to kill civilians and troops alike. 
As far as I'm concerned, the West, especially the United States, has missed opportunities over the decades to foster better relations with Tehran because of imperial foreign policy that extracted resources from Iran and did little to respect the agency of the Iranian people. But mostly, U.S. and Iranian relations are suffering from decades of ignorance and a stubbornness to do anything about it. This series really aims to unpack those ignorances, and I want to start by unpacking my own. After the 9-11 attacks, I was as shocked and scared as other Americans. And look, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it today, but I was one of those people who felt that Americans needed to seek revenge against the so-called extremists in the Middle East, starting with Saddam Hussein, who George Bush erroneously blamed for the attacks. But it was his 2002 State of the Union speech that sparked the genesis of my ignorance about Iran in particular. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. I was never a fan of Bush, but his words evoked a fear of Iran that would stain my mind for years. I was a senior in college at the time. Assal was finishing her first year of university. She, like the rest of the nation, was watching Bush's speech and told me how his words evoked confusion and fear in her loved ones here in the United States and Tehran. So I was uh, a freshman in undergrad when 9-11 when happened. And, you know, you're sort of at this age where you're entering college and, and you're learning um, more about the world around you. And here's this catastrophic event that happens in the United States. And, you know, when you're looking to your leader, you're looking to the president. Now, I actually voted in the 2000 election it was the first time I got to vote. It was a very exciting process for me. And I'll be honest, I did not vote for George Bush. So I was not particularly happy about his presidency. But, you know, you're still looking to the leader of the country. You're still looking to the president to to see how you're going to handle this. What you what was clear at the moment was going to be a turning point, it, not just in the U.S., but really globally. Like everybody knew, everybody was anticipating what was going to be the reaction and the response to this. And in Iran, where my extended family lives, there was, you know, just like everywhere else in the world, people were shocked. Uh, they were shocked. They were disturbed by the images. I mean, you cannot see those images and not be disturbed by that loss of innocent life. And, you know, they held candlelight vigils. You had uh, officials in the country responding with condemnations. And so when you sat down to listen to the president's address and in it, his response to this event is to name, you know, three countries as this access of evil, uh, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, none of which had anything to do with the event that took place. 
not only was it frustrating as an American, right? Just watching and sort of being like, what, how is this going to be a helpful response to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again when you're going after countries that aren't that weren't even involved in it. But then as an Iranian American, you know, it was a time in which Iran had seen its first reformist president under Mohammad Khatami. You know, here Khatami was talking about uh, a dialogue of civilizations, really wanting to like extend an olive branch to the United States. And as an Iranian American, that's that's the dream, right? Like we live in a constant state where our country of heritage is vilified, where there's this enmity between these two states, where you're worried that there's going to be a larger conflict. Um, and there was hope. There was this hopeful moment where maybe there can finally be some kind of engagement with the two sides. And of course, that speech really flew in the face of a dialogue of civilizations and just positioned Iran as reiterating this idea that Iran is a villainous state and, and the United States is going to go after it. When I reflect on Assault's words, they remind me of my ignorance back then. I, a black man who grew up in Detroit with my own experiences of racism in America, could be compelled into ignorance about another group of people. But the more my knowledge of US foreign policy grew, especially its imperial aspects, I became more open-minded about Iran and what I was getting wrong. I'm sure I'm not the only one. So that's why I created the series, Liberating Iran. I think we all need to unpack why Iran has such a bad reputation in the West. And most importantly, how Western foreign policy has contributed to it. Over the course of five episodes, experts of Iranian descent will walk me through subjects like politics, history, the media landscape, Afro-Iranian relations, the women's rights movement, nuclear weapons policy from their own point of view. Some of my guests like journalist Yegi Rizayan were born in Iran soon after the 1979 revolution and suffered through its most repressive practices. Then you have my guest for today's episode, Asal, whose family emigrated to the States where she was born and raised. I first learned of Asal around 2020 through her tweets challenging American imperial thinking towards the Middle East. Look, I, I used to think Iran elected one extremist leader after another who did the supreme leader's bidding. I really didn't know that Iran elected moderate thinkers like Saeed Mohammed Khatami, who was elected to two consecutive terms from 1998 to 2005 and sought reconciliation with the United States. Listen to Khatami's comments on the September 11th attacks. As a human, as a Muslim, and as an Iranian, I stand before you to once again express my deepest sympathy with the families of the victims and with all the great American people. Let us wish for a world devoid of violence and anger. So you have this sort of eight-year block where you have someone who is, you know, very openly arguing for reforming and creating a more open society. And one of the steps he takes is at the very beginning, he has, you know, an interview on CNN and in it, you know, he talks about respect for the U.S. and U.S. civilization and American culture because he wanted to sort of, you know, this was a different image. This was a different face of Iran. Here's Hatami being interviewed on CNN through an interpreter. 
Here I don't wish to insult anyone. I know that there are quite a few wise and fair-minded personalities and statesmen in the United States. But the outcome of the interplay within the United States polity has shaped the U.S. policy in a manner that continues to be a prisoner of Cold War mentality. After the collapse of communism, there has been an attempt by certain circles to portray Islam as the new enemy. And regrettably, they are targeting progressive Islam rather than certain regressive interpretations of Islam. They attack an Islam which seeks democracy, progress, and development, an Islam which calls for utilization of achievements of human civilization, including that of the West. It wasn't the, a face of aggression. It was a face of, and it, again, if even if it wasn't one of friendship, it was one of peace. It was one of uh, wanting to change this sort of negative status quo, which doesn't benefit anybody. It certainly doesn't benefit Iran. It doesn't benefit the United States. It doesn't benefit global security. Um, you know, like right now, if we look at the tensions that exist, there are a lot of people who are very worried about the reverberations that can uh, happen if we actually get into a larger conflict with Iran. I mean, when you look at Afghanistan and Iraq, um, they are nowhere comparable to what a conflict with Iran would be for multiple reasons. The, the fact that Iran is a much larger country, has a much larger population, has a, a solidly entrenched government, whether or not people like it is really beside the point. It simply is uh, a large bureaucracy that's well-established and so not easily uh, removable or collapsible. And so the, the hope from, you know, this is 20 years ago, was that there was a way towards reproachment. And like I said, you know, during that time, that's when 9-11 happened, and that's the sort of axis of evil speech. And every attempt at reproachment from Iran was essentially rejected by the United States. You know, even before 9-11, uh, the Khatami government in Iran sort of warned about the Taliban in Afghanistan. Why? Because Afghanistan and Iran are bordering countries, right? Like there's a huge uh, Afghan, Afghan refugee population in Iran. What happens in Afghanistan affects Iran directly in a much more concrete way than, for instance, it affects people in the United States. So there were these attempts that were made and, and basically uh, rejected over and over. I have to interject by saying that I feel like we've been cheated, like our government cheated us out of really having a viable relationship with Iran that could have led to us obviously having a less intense relationship with these people. We missed an opportunity. Everything you're telling me really shows how we need a new approach and fresh minds in our foreign policy world, because everything that you're saying is reaffirming it's, it's it's really affirming my own personal research um had we had sensible leadership during this period we would have been better off i just have to express that because i feel really angry and irritated that this opportunity was missed oh, oh trust me so do i so do so do many of us right because precisely to your point i mean not only were there other opportunities but the the Iran nuclear deal itself and and that missed opportunity and and what you're sort of seeing right now from the Biden administration is not what we had hoped for right there's there's still a major possibility of this deal collapsing which is a waste it's it's a wasted it's yet another wasted opportunity that will lead to nothing good for anyone for anyone and it's incredible that we put these policies in place that clearly are not effective but we continue doing the same thing. 
Katami was a far cry from Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the hardliner president that replaced him in the next administration. Beyond his vitriol against the United States in the West, one of his most memorable diatribes included him denying the Holocaust, saying more research needed to be done to conclude that Hitler's well-documented genocide of millions of Jews had actually taken place. Katami, who had gone on to criticize Ahmadinejad's foreign policy towards the West, was definitely different from the more extreme elements of the 1979 revolution that set the stage for decades of frayed U.S.-Iran relations that will follow. U.S. sanctions began after the American embassy in Tehran was raided and its employees taken hostage. Iranian imports to the U.S. were banned and 12 billion in assets were seized. In 1984, Washington designated Iran as a state sponsor of terror, bringing with it sweeping sanctions which include prohibiting U.S. energy companies from investing in the country and the prohibition of all goods and services from the United States to Iran or from Iran to the United States. Trump's maximum pressure policy to apply even more sanctions did nothing to change the Iranian government's thinking. To the contrary, it's driven up inflation and unemployment, hampered its trade with Western nations, and in one instance, driven the middle class into poverty. For as many headlines as it makes in America, Iran is a country we rarely get to see. One of the first things you notice here, those stalled construction projects along the Tehran skyline. Unemployment is high. Food prices have doubled. Things are very expensive? Yes. Shoppers in this bazaar tell us virtually everything has gone up. One of the driving factors behind the stiff sanctions over the years has been the allegations that Iran was looking to enrich uranium to acquire a nuclear weapon. These allegations date back to the 1980s, but U.S. intelligence claims the weapons dimension of the program ended in 2003. One of the conditions the West has repeatedly assisted on over the years was that it stopped enriching uranium altogether, a demand Tehran has always seen as a non-starter. By the way, enriching uranium for peaceful energy purposes is common, and the act itself doesn't mean one is pursuing a weapon. Of course, Ahmadinejad's rhetoric and combative style didn't warm him to the West either. Most of the sanctions against Iran were enacted under his administration. He was certainly a combative leader who did little to negotiate with the Bush administration, which, if we want to be honest, wasn't a good faith broker either. In 2007, towards the end of Bush's administration, the UN tightened sanctions on Iran, and there was no indication of hope that relations between Iran and the West would get any better. Rumblings of an inevitable war with Iran from the more hawkish members of Congress felt imminent at times. A new opportunity for engagement came in 2008 when Barack Obama said, as a presidential candidate, that he would be willing to have direct talks with Iran under the right conditions. What we've seen over the last several years is Iran's influence grow. They have funded Hezbollah, they have funded Hamas, they have gone from zero centrifuges to 4,000 centrifuges uh, to develop a nuclear weapon. So obviously our policy over the last eight years has not worked. This notion that by not talking to people we are punishing them has not worked. It has not worked in Iran, it has not worked in North Korea. In each instance, our efforts at isolation have actually accelerated their efforts to get nuclear weapons. That will change when I'm President of the United States. His words were sharply criticized by his opponents from both sides of the aisle. 
But his willingness stood out to me and says a lot about political timing. Oftentimes, peace between conflicting nations is brokered simply because the right leaders just happen to be in power at the same time. When Ronald Reagan was trying to negotiate weapons treaties with the Soviet Union, Moscow leaders from Leonid Brezhnev on down to the succession of premiers who died in office one after the other pretty much flipped Reagan the bird until Gorbachev took over in 1985. The clerk helped to end South Africa's nuclear weapons program as the country was pressured into ending apartheid. None of these people are saints, of course, but all of them at certain times in history showed signs for groundbreaking compromise, and that is what often determines the difference between a declaration of war and a peace treaty. Obama was that difference maker from the U.S. side as far as dealing with Iran. The only problem was that Ahmadinejad wasn't the right person for Iran. That changed in 2013 when Hassan Rouhani was elected into office on a platform of engaging the West. It didn't take too long for Obama to seize on the opportunity. Good evening. Today, the United States, together with our close allies and partners, took an important first step toward a comprehensive solution that addresses our concerns with the Islamic Republic of Iran's nuclear program. Since I took office, I've made clear my determination to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. As I've said many times, my strong preference is to resolve this issue peacefully, and we've extended the hand of diplomacy. Yet, for many years, Iran's been unwilling to meet its obligations to the international community. So my administration worked with Congress, the United Nations Security Council, and countries around the world to impose unprecedented sanctions on the Iranian government. These sanctions have had a substantial impact on the Iranian economy. And with the election of a new Iranian president earlier this year, an opening for diplomacy emerged. I spoke personally with President Rouhani of Iran earlier this fall. Secretary Kerry has met multiple times with Iran's foreign minister. And we have pursued intensive diplomacy, bilaterally with the Iranians and together with our P5 plus one partners, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, and China, as well as the European Union. Today, that diplomacy opened up a new path toward a world that is more secure a future in which we can verify that Iran's nuclear program is peaceful and that it cannot build a nuclear weapon. Though the Obama administration stiffened sanctions against Iran during his first term, it continued to engage its leadership through backdoor talks. It took nearly three years to negotiate the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and slowly shift sanctions that would allow it to eventually join the world economy. The International Atomic Energy Agency said the Iranians were honoring the letter of the deal and the Trump White House certified those findings up until the ex-president pulled out of the deal in 2018. At the point when the United States had maximum leverage, this disastrous deal gave this regime, and it's a regime of great terror, many billions of dollars, some of it in actual cash a great embarrassment to me as a citizen and to all citizens of the United States. A constructive deal could easily have been struck at the time, but it wasn't. At the heart of the Iran deal was a giant fiction.
that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. Today, we have definitive proof that this Iranian promise was a lie. Last week, Israel published intelligence documents long concealed by Iran, conclusively showing the Iranians' regime and its history of pursuing nuclear weapons. The fact is, this was a horrible, one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. It didn't bring calm, it didn't bring peace, and it never will. In the years since the deal was reached, Iran's military budget has grown by almost 40 percent, while its economy is doing very badly. After the sanctions were lifted, the dictatorship used its new funds to build nuclear-capable missiles, support terrorism, and cause havoc throughout the Middle East and beyond. The agreement was so poorly negotiated that even if Iran fully complies, the regime can still be on the verge of a nuclear breakout in just a short period of time. He said a lot in this 12-minute speech that was completely false or very misleading. Let's just start with the statement that the White House paid Iran billions of dollars to enter the deal. What Trump left out was that those billions of dollars were frozen assets in Western banks that were released after Tehran entered the deal. And the $400 million in cash that was paid out is connected to arms deals the Shah made with Washington to buy weapons that never made it to Iran because of the 1979 revolution. Was the release of American-Iranian journalist Jason Rezaian a condition for the money to be given to Tehran? Sure, but in either case, the money was Iran's to begin with. There were many other misleading statements in this announcement, which you can read about in the show notes, courtesy of the Washington Post. Look, it's always been easy to refute Trump's lies, but Assal says they are still dangerous because many Americans actually believe them. You know, there was actually Brookings just had a report that said 60 percent of Americans think that Iran has a nuclear weapon. And more interesting than that, more Americans think that Iran has a nuclear weapon than think that Israel has a nuclear weapon. Israel is the only nuclear armed power in the Middle East. It has anywhere between 90 According to arms control, it has 90, but there are other estimates that go up to 400 nuclear weapons. And the reason we don't know is because Israel doesn't acknowledge that it has nuclear weapons, nor does the U.S. The U.S. does not acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. But we all know Israel has them. Then CNN anchor Chris Cuomo pressed Benjamin Netanyahu on this some four years ago. The idea of disclosure, Iran won't tell the truth. We had to go in there, you know, is Israel's position and steal this information so we can know the truth. Disclosure as an issue should work every way. The United States should say what it has. You know where I'm going with this. A yes, no question for you. Does Israel have nuclear capabilities and nuclear weapons? Yes or no? Uh, we've always said that we won't be the first to introduce it, so we haven't introduced it. But that's and not an answer to the question. Do you have them or do you not? Of any country. It's as good an answer as you're going to get. But I'll tell you one thing, Chris, and I think it's important. You know, Iran signed NPT. Iran signed all sorts of uh, commitments. Iran said that they don't have this nuclear weapons program. And Iran calls 
daily for the annihilation of my country. Absolutely. We don't do that. We understand that there is an existential threat from Iran and others. We understand that Iran is known for lying on this issue. That's one of the big motivating factors for the deal in 20, uh, 2015, as it was explained to us. But what I'm saying is, if disclosure matters so much, what message does it send when you won't confirm something that is widely believed by the entire international community? How does that inspire the spirit of disclosure? I, I said that the, I said that the, it's not the spirit of disclosure, it's a commitment, a specific written commitment by Iran as part of the deal to disclose what it has. Iran undertook that specific commitment. I understand, but you know what their the take on it is. That, is that you won't even confirm that you have nuclear weapons when the world already believes that you do. Why? Why keep that quiet? Well, you, you can make all your assumptions. One thing is clear. Israel is not threatening the annihilation of any country. The fact that the majority of Americans can believe something or think something that is patently false tells you something about the information that they are receiving. I mean, I don't know how el what other conclusion you can draw in any other scenario if the majority of a country had completely false information that they believed, where do you think they're getting the information from? So there is something problematic in the way that information is being presented to the American public. Um, and part of it is to create, again, this idea that Iran is a menace. Like, look, the, we should be very, very scared of Iran. Now, you know, it's funny because the way that Iran is portrayed in the media is, and this is a Orientalist trope, this is a sort of like cliche within Orientalism, is that it is at the same time so weak that it's on the brink of collapse, right? If we just, just a few more sanctions and they'll be gone, the whole country will collapse. But at the same time, it's this all-powerful menace that has, you know, tentacles in in everything. Uh, you have people who are saying, you know, Human Rights Watch, The New York Times, scholars at Stanford and Harvard, everywhere. They're all somehow uh, covering for the Islamic Republic. That's how powerful it is. It's just everyone is working on the Islamic Republic dime. But at the same time, it's about to collapse. So these contradictory narratives, all of these things lead to misinformation. It's misinformation that makes people believe that um, a, Iran has a nuclear weapon when it does not, and B, that it's this massive threat. I mean, just to understand the sort of ridiculousness of that power dynamic is Iran is currently, and this is according to the U.S., right? The U.S. government, our officials have, under the Trump administration, they boasted about the effects of U.S. sanctions and how it's impacted the Iranian economy, right? So you have a country, Iran, that is, economy is in tatters, because of U.S. sanctions. Iran has no power to reverse that. There is not even a remotely similar power dynamic. Iran's military spending in the region is actually, not only is it not the highest, it's actually quite low. I mean, there's multiple countries in the region that spend a great deal more. So the idea that Iran is this threat is more ideological. Most Americans' understanding of the Middle East is born out of fear or the United States military engagement with the region. It took me years of acknowledging and unlearning my own biases about Islam in the Middle East to be the reflective person I am today. But most people, no matter their nationality, don't do the work to become better thinkers about their fellow human beings. In a 2021 Associated Press poll conducted ahead of the 9-11 anniversary, confirms that most Americans 
have learned little since 2001. It found that 53% of Americans have unfavorable views towards Islam, compared to 42% who have favorable views. This stands in contrast to Americans' opinions about Christianity and Judaism, for which most respondents express favorable views. It doesn't help that you have high-ranking officials like U.S. Senator Susan Collins, who thought that it was the Iranians attacking the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. I bullshit you not. She wrote in the Bangor Daily News, and I quote, My first thought was that the Iranians had followed through on their threat to strike the Capitol. Mind you, Senator Collins is on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. But this goes to Assal's point of how ideology drives many lawmakers thinking about the Middle East. It's something that starts long before people make it to the halls of Congress. Assal recalls moments from her childhood when she remembers her classmates expressing the ignorance that many Americans carry into their adulthood. There were incidents when I was younger. I remember actually during the, uh, the first Gulf War, this is in the early 90s, I was really, really young. And, you know, kids don't know, and I didn't really understand any of it myself at the time, but like kids don't know the difference between different ethnicities and countries and things like that in the Middle East. I mean, adults in the United States don't know the difference between things like that in the Middle East. So I remember, you know, I would get made fun of or something for, or being called like Saddam Hussein's daughter, you know, and that was such a sort of like now when you think about it, such a silly thing to say to another kid. But, you know, those were the small incidents that made you feel a little bit alienated, a little bit like you're outside of the the dominant culture. Yeah, and I have to add that Saddam invaded Iran. So in addition to being offensive, it was extraordinarily ignorant, no matter the age. You know, even to this day, it's so interesting. When I try to engage in political discussions about U.S. policy as an American, as any other American, I constantly, and this is more online, I should say, where, where, you know, this sort of toxic bullying takes place, but I still get people who tell me, you know, go, go back to Iran, or like, you can't criticize the U.S. unless you criticize Iran, or you can't, like, you have no right to talk about, you know, and it's this idea that it's like, I'm not really an American, right? Because for some reason, my, my country of heritage defines me in a way that makes me other within the country that is my own. Um, And that those small experiences happened as a child. But the thing to keep in mind is there is this huge, I mean, enmity between these two states. And it's so pervasive in the US, like the the vilification of Iran is, it pervades everything in the US where if it's your country of heritage, you just notice it more, right? If someone on uh, broadcast television and like a sitcom says something incredibly racist about Iran, you notice it because you're Iranian American. And I remember as a teenager, there was this game we would all play called taboo i think people still play it now it's basically like a game where you have a team and there's a card and there's a word at the top and you're supposed to get everybody to guess it without using the words on the list and i remember flipping the card and the word was hostage and one of the the words on the list was iran you know and for me at the time again it was it was sort of shocking like oh this is how we are seen by americans at large then you have this hit by lindsey graham Poking fun at Senator Elizabeth Warren's DNA test is getting a lot of mileage. Even Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is joking about it. On Fox & Friends this week, Graham announced he is getting a test of his own DNA, and he joked it might determine if he is Iranian. And then he laughed and said something that is angering a lot of Iranian Americans. So if you missed it, here he was. 
Come Thank back you. in a couple of weeks and yeah. we'll take a look. We'll, we'll find out who you really are. I'll probably be Iranian. That'd be like terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Though there's much work to be done to reverse decades of negative portrayals of Iran, there are signs that Americans at large desire better relations with the country. Most support the Biden administration returning to the deal and feel sanctions are doing more harm than good. So far, thousands of Iranians have been detained for protesting their government, which complicates the Biden administration's efforts to rejoin the deal. When Hassan Rouhani was in office, the Obama administration had a moderate partner in Tehran who wanted to see the deal go through as badly as they did. Iran's current president, Raisi, is the polar opposite. He campaigned on rhetoric that Rouhani was fooled into negotiating with the West and Trump's withdrawal from the Iran deal was Exhibit A. Another issue was that the presidential committee, a body that determines who's eligible to run for president, disqualified the more moderate candidates, leaving Raisi with an easy path to victory. Raisi has his own set of conditions for Iran to re-enter the deal, including guarantees that Western companies that invest in Iran will be protected if the U.S. drops out of the deal. He also wants the U.S. to promise that it will never leave the deal again, as long as Tehran was in compliance. This is a demand U.S. officials have said is impossible because the Biden administration can't control decisions made by future presidents. Iran's military support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine also complicates matters. There have been opportunities for Biden to re-enter the deal, but he didn't take advantage of them. There was some hesitation, at least, to, to sort of reverse what their predecessors had done. And so you see, number one, sanctions remaining in place, right? The maximum pressure sanctions of the Trump administration uh, more or less have basically all remained in place. And on top of that, the U.S. never returned to the deal, right? So the U.S., as of right now, as of this moment, is still not a party to the deal because once the Trump admin withdrew, we never returned to it. And so even though negotiations with the United States, Iran, and the other partners, the P5 plus one, uh, resumed in April of 2021, the U.S. and Iran never directly spoke. They were indirectly speaking because Iran didn't want the U.S. in the room essentially directly negotiating because they were no longer a party to the deal. These are ways in which, you know, some would argue, I would argue that the Biden admin misstepped in not really capitalizing on the opportunity to return to the deal when the Rouhani administration was still in power. That administration is, staked their, their entire presidency, their entire claim to success on the JCPOA. And once, you know, once the Iranian election took place and um, this new hardline ultra-conservative Raisi administration took over, the ability to negotiate became more daunting, I guess, on the U.S. side is the easiest way of saying it. So there was that from the sort of beginning where we look at it. But where we are now, you know, and these negotiations continue to go. There were different reasons why, you know, on the Iranian side, there were certain uh, hiccups where they thought, you know, the, the U.S. has to take the first step. The U.S. thought, well, Iran has to return to compliance first. So, you know, you had these sort of back and forth issues. But then where we are now, of course, is with the protests that have been going on since September, since the killing of Masa Amini. You have the Biden administration, reasonably so, uh, coming out and saying that the JCPOA is not their current priority, that protests in Iran are their priority. And the reason I say that that is a very reasonable stance to take is as, you know, it is it is much more difficult um, to, to negotiate with a government 
that is killing its protesters, that it's killing young protesters, that is, uh, you know, brutally cracking down on a population that's really just calling for their own freedoms. And so it's understandable that that would be the priority would be to focus on the protests and how the U.S., without intervening in, um, you know, the affairs of another country, without intervening in, in what the Iranian people themselves are doing, but still helping them. One of the things that continues to bug me all is something that Assal said earlier about missed opportunities to work with the Rouhani administration. Now, look, we all know that he wasn't some liberal figure who was going to deliver Western style democracy. But here's the thing. We shouldn't expect it. Diplomacy, as far as I'm concerned, is about establishing mutual respect for each other's agency and being in constant contact with each other to avoid conflict whenever possible. The protests that have captured the world's attention have ebbed a bit. They go up and down. But the Iranian people's resistance to their government's human rights abuses are very much active. I asked Assal what she thinks will come of the protests and the attention they're generating. Like others I've interviewed for this series, she says she wasn't sure. Well, I think that, you know, it's hard to it's hard to predict what will happen because these the nature of these events are unpredictable by their nature. Of course, there's there's also a difference between what we want to see happen and what is likely to happen and what will happen, right? We all want to see these protests be successful. We all want to see um, people live with dignity and freedom. How that will happen, how long that will take, that that's an entirely different subject to talk about. But in terms of how things will change, I think for one thing, you have a new generation that has come to the political forefront, and that is Gen Zers, right? And those are the people who are leading these protests right now. And they have not been participants in previous iterations of protests that have happened in Iran. And there is a significant difference uh, between what we're seeing now and what we've seen in the past, because whereas the post-revolutionary generation attempted reform, right? They really tried to engage with the system, reform the system uh, from within, participated in elections. What you're seeing now is a generation that's removed from the revolution, removed from the war of the 1980s. And so they don't have the same connection to that period as the previous generation. It's also a generation that was raised with the internet. And, and this is true of all Gen Zers everywhere, right? There is a distinct difference between a generation that has been raised with the internet with everybody else. And in Iran, where it's been an isolated society, not only because of its own government, because, uh, you know, it's not easy for an Iranian to travel with an Iranian passport outside of the country. Very few countries um, admit Iranians easily, especially in the West. And so this is an isolated country with an isolated population. See, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that. I figured if you can get, just get a visa, you can just, it, it's not that complicated. Yeah, I didn't know that. In terms of the United States, I'll tell you, so I'm Iranian-American. I was born and raised in the United States, but my family um, in Iran has very rarely been able to travel here my entire life. It's very, very difficult to get a visa. It's very difficult for them to get visas for European countries. I mean, Iranians are really cut off from a lot of places in the world. But what the Internet does is it allows you to see the world without having to leave your country, right? They don't have to leave Iran. And so you also have this generation that can juxtapose what they're seeing on TikTok, what they're seeing on Instagram with their own daily lives. And that's 
why I think you also see a the the failure of reformists to be able to actually deliver on their promises um, in some cases be because of the the corruption within the system it won't reform and if there if it refuses to reform and you have a population that is aggrieved then calling for a toppling of the state is really the only option that remains to them and you see that kind of passion within these these younger generation of Iranians who like I said are far removed from the the events of the revolution and the war of the 1980s which really shaped the Islamic Republic and so they're demanding change in a very different way and what you see is these acts of civil disobedience that we haven't seen before. So the fact that women, for instance, are going out, burning their hijabs, just going out without their hijabs, right? This is technically illegal in Iran. This is extremely dangerous for them to do because they can be arrested at any moment just for going out without their headscarf. So these are acts of civil disobedience that challenge the state in a very different way than what we've seen in the past. It's clear that the Iranian people certainly feel their time for change is now and they're hoping that their protests sooner or later will lead to a new revolution in Iran. America and the West have squandered opportunity after opportunity to foster better ties with the country. So much of the progress that could have been made never happened. We've often misread the aspirations of the Iranian people or orchestrated coups to undermine them. And yes, some of Iran's leaders have not been amicable to peace with the West, but between Bush, Trump and past administrations, America has proven its political climate can be just as fanatical and unsuitable for compromise. We've seen what maximum pressure has brought us. Nothing. But this time around, with Iranians risking their lives, I hope our country has learned that crippling sanctions and an Islamophobic foreign policy does little to bring peace. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Liberating Iran. We spent more than two years working on this series and have a few people to thank. Financial support comes from the Plowshares Fund, which has been very supportive during the ups and downs of seeing this project to fruition. We also want to thank the Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at outrider.org. As I'm not an Iran scholar, I needed help fact-checking this episode in the Saul Rod. The subject of today's show was more than happy to listen to it before we finalized everything. We use a lot of news videos and articles to help tell the story of the Iran deal and the politics of Iran in general. Some of the sources came from the New York Times, Washington Post, C-SPAN, ABC News, MSNBC, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal. And we do use Wikipedia as a guide that helps to lead us to articles and academic papers that back up their page entries. We also use protest chants and songs from the brave people of Iran. Please go and buy Assal's book, State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Next week in episode two, you're here from Puya Ali Maham, who will walk us through the history of Iranian-U.S. relations and all the ways Washington in the West screwed over the Iranian people. And just as important, we need a lot of money to keep these podcasts going. So go to the show notes and support us via PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Talk to you all next week. Yeah,